Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Signal Mountain is a small town of almost 9,000 residents and located five miles north of Chattanooga, Tennessee, the fourth largest city in the state. The town of Signal Mountain gets its name from an outcropping of land called Signal Point that was once used by Native Americans, including Creeks and Cherokee, to send fire and smoke signals across the Tennessee Valley. During the Civil War, Signal Point was used by the Union Army as a communication station. Signal Mountain was also home to a Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, Charles Coolidge, who when he died last year at the age of 99, was the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from the European theater of World War II. Now a peaceful suburban town, the area's thriving arts scene includes open-air summer plays and musicals at the Signal Mountain Playhouse and the Mountain Opry, which stages bluegrass concerts in a nearby community hall. Signal Mountain is also known for its outdoor activities with wooded hiking trails leading to serene lakes, waterfalls, and overlooks with views of the Tennessee River. But in 1988, Signal Mountain's famed trails became the site of a triple murder that would shock the community and take almost a decade to solve. So before we start, two things. One, clearly I'm not better, so, <laughs> so I apologize for the voice once again. But secondly, we wanted to thank our listener, Jennifer with a J, who suggested that we do this story. Thanks, Jennifer. We appreciate the suggestion and found the story fascinating. 22-year-old Kenneth Griffith and 24-year-old Earl Smock were two members of the same Air Force squadron, stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. On a weekend leave, Ken and his wife Paula drove six and a half hours to Signal Mountain, Tennessee to visit their families for a few days. They also brought their friend Earl with them. On Saturday afternoon, July 9th, 1988, Ken, Earl, 
and Ken's father-in-law, Richard Mason, decided to go four-wheeling on ATVs, all-terrain vehicles. They wanted to go to a swimming area known to the locals as the Blue Hole. It was Ken's favorite place to go with his friends when he was in high school. Earl had brought his ATV with him from Florida. Richard only owned one ATV, so he borrowed another one from his friend and neighbor, Stanley Nixon. The three men packed a cooler with drinks, and Richard wrapped a pistol in a towel and placed the pistol in the toolbox beneath the seat of his ATV. Ken and Earl brought only shorts with them on their trip to Tennessee, so for the ride through the woods to get to the swimming hole, both men put on their green flight suits that they had in the car. They left Richard's home about 6 p.m. and were eager to get to the Blue Hole because they wanted to be home before sunset, which gave them about three hours. Meaning sunset was about 9 o'clock. Looks that way. That's so late. When I was on vacation a couple weeks ago, we were kind of tripping out because the sun didn't set in England, Ireland, or Germany until like 10 p.m. I went to Europe for three weeks years and years ago, and I don't even remember that. Like, what the heck? Was I just drunk the whole time? I think you were. (laughs) I just don't remember. I think that's really the best answer. (laughs) Paula said goodbye to her husband, his friend Earl, and her father. She became concerned when the three men did not come home by 9 p.m. Ken and Earl were both over six feet tall and weighed more than 200 pounds. Her dad, 49-year-old Richard, lived in Signal Mountain for 20 years and was very familiar with the woods surrounding their property. For them not to have made it home, something was very wrong. Well, and not only were they over six feet tall and 200 pounds, they were military. Yeah, exactly. These were no shrinking violets. Right. By the next morning, Sunday, July 10th, 1988, family and friends reached out to authorities and organized a search party to find the three men. A team of about 100 people scoured the rugged wooded areas and trails the three men would have taken to get to the Blue Hole from Richard's house. Stanley Nixon, the neighbor from whom Richard borrowed the ATV, knew Richard well, and the two often hunted together. Stanley did not realize that Richard had borrowed his ATV until Richard's wife called him the next morning, July 10th, to tell him Richard had not come home the previous night. Stanley then borrowed another friend's ATV and began searching through the woods for the three men. Stanley spotted tracks on the dirt trail near Richard's house that appeared to have been made by ATVs. So he followed the tracks around a campground area and on a trail leading to Helican Road. But Stanley lost the tracks when he reached a paved road. Unfortunately, his efforts were unsuccessful at finding the three men. So, Kath, the way that Helican Road was described and the way that I saw it in pictures is that it's more like a large trail than it is an actual road. So nothing about it is paved. It's completely dirt. It would only fit one vehicle going in either direction, so you wouldn't be able to even, like, pull over to the side of the road to let another vehicle go through. So that's why Stanley went searching for them on an ATV. Got it. A few hours after the search began, a local resident stopped to check on one of his tires because he felt that it was deflated. This was about five miles from Richard's house, and the resident noticed what looked like three ATVs at the bottom of a nearby bluff and called 911. Officer Larry Sneed of the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department responded to the call and found the three ATVs dumped in an illegal dump site. So, Kath, if you live in a rural area, and I get this from relatives who do live in rural areas, Mm -hmm. not that I ever have, but a lot of times if you're in these wide open spaces, 
people will just decide to make any place they don't want to have stuff anymore a dump site. And because it's very highly regulated, you have to take trash to transfer stations and whatnot, you can have several illegal dump sites in an area and it can be couches or trash you just don't feel like taking all the way to the transfer station or what have you. So that's what this was. Do you remember when my backyard looked like an illegal dump site? (laughs) No. (laughs) You know how I have like a weird shaped property? Yeah. I I have a little backyard and a big backyard. I always made sure the little backyard looked nice because you could see it from my windows. But the big backyard, you can't. And there was a time when water became really expensive and California is always in drought. So we were in a bad drought. I just stopped watering the grass. And honest to God, if a social services worker had seen my backyard, they would have taken my children and assumed that I was making meth. (laughs) (laughs) It looked so bad. (laughs) So when I decided to make my backyard nice again, it was during the summer and my sister's kids were visiting. So I decided to use child labor. It's the best kind of labor. Yeah, exactly. So I had my five kids, her two kids. I had another couple neighborhood kids and I paid them like a buck or something like that (laughs) for every wheelbarrow load of dirt they took out of my backyard. (laughs) You know, kids need to have something to talk about in therapy. That's exactly right. (laughs) When officers were able to go down the bluff to the dump site, they found that two of the ATVs were covered in blood and what they believed to be bone chips were actually found on the third ATV. Detectives also found a gun wrapped in a towel that was lodged between the seats of one of the ATVs. And if you'll recall, Richard had brought a gun with them when they went on this journey. Hamilton County Chief Deputy Sheriff Jim Hammond thought it was a possibility that the men may have been attacked after stumbling across someone's hidden marijuana crop. And marijuana crops are no joke. Oh, yeah. No, people are serious about that. Yeah. There was somebody I went to grad school with Mm -hmm. and her boyfriend actually made quite a lot of money guarding these marijuana crops. Exactly. The area where the vehicles were found was about five miles from where the three men were riding their ATVs on Saturday night, which led Chief Deputy Hammond to further speculate that the vehicles were transported from another location and then dumped. As Detective Sneed and law enforcement personnel retrieved the ATVs, A Signal Mountain resident approached them and said that he had heard gunshots the night before at an area known as The Gate on Helican Road. Okay, just like Helican Road wasn't a road, The Gate isn't a gate either. (laughs) It probably once was. That's exactly. It's an area where it used to be and the locals just knew it as The Gate and they never stopped calling it that. Two days after the disappearance of the men, more than 100 searchers, dogs, and helicopters continued scouring the dense forest and arrived at The Gate area of Helican Road. According to the court records, the search group took a break near the gate, or near where the gate used to be, and noticed that the area around it had been manicured or cleaned so much that it looked unusual. The dirt road was so smooth that it was impossible to tell if anyone had walked or driven an ATV through the gate. A member of the team spotted some blood drops, bone chips, and what looked like brain matter on a leaf near the gate. A knife also was found that was identified by Lee Griffith as belonging to his younger brother, Ken. At this point, a cadaver dog was brought in. The dog started digging through brush beneath the gate area, and a large pool of blood was discovered. A second bloodstained area was also later discovered, and both areas had been covered with leaves. The bark of a tree near the road showed marks that were possibly from shotgun blasts. Later that day, Detective Sneed asked all property owners in the area to come to the location that the police were searching in order to be interviewed. 
Now, Kath, I'm speculating on this, but I think the reason they did that is on Helican Road, they had kind of like short embankments on either side. Mm -hmm. And they had said that when they were searching, even though the road was smooth, there were some areas on these embankments that showed like marks that a truck could have made, like the bumpers of a truck could have made. Oh, interesting. And so my speculation is, is that they were trying to get all the vehicles so they could start searching them. Oh, that's interesting. I like how we speculate. I do too. (laughs) It does make it more interesting. (laughs) In our minds anyway. Exactly. (laughs) A man named Frank Castile met with Detective Sneed that afternoon as requested. Frank was a 41-year-old married mechanical engineer with three children. He had purchased a 130-acre parcel two months prior and told the police that he and his wife intended to build a house and eventually live on the property. Detective Sneed asked to see Frank's vehicle, which Frank said was parked at a friend's house. Detectives went with him to his friend's house, and Frank gave detectives permission to search his Jeep Scrambler. And, Kath, I understand a Jeep Scrambler is basically a Jeep that has the bed of a pickup truck. So it's kind of like a mullet. (laughs) (laughs) Business in the front, party in the back. (laughs) Oh, my God. Inside the Jeep, detectives found a logbook that belonged to Frank in which he had recorded details of several encounters that he had with trespassers on his land. In the book was the trespassers' names, telephone numbers, and license plate numbers. Detective Sneed asked Frank if he could have the book, and Frank agreed. Sneed then asked Frank whether he owned a shotgun, and he said he did. He gave the detective permission to borrow the gun, and the detectives went to Frank's house to retrieve it. Ballistic tests were performed on the shell fragments and wadding from the scene, but were inconclusive with a match to Frank's shotgun. Are you going to explain what wadding is? Well, since I found out what it was about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) So wadding, and you know I know this. (laughs) The wadding is, from what I understand, a small plastic disc that is inside the shotgun shell that holds all of the pellets together. So when the shotgun is fired, the casing itself gets ejected out to the side of the shotgun, but the pellets and this plastic disc, or the wadding, Get shot out the front of the barrel of the gun. Any more questions about shotguns? Let me know. (laughs) You sound like you know what you're talking about. (laughs) Do you want to hear about the theory of relativity again? Oh, yes. (laughs) On the third day of searching, the search party discovered a campsite with a fire pit less than a mile from the gate. Around the campsite, the search party found burnt blue plastic and a metal grommet. The police collected the items. In an Associated Press article in the Kingsport Times News on Wednesday, June 13th, so four days after the disappearance, the search team now included two Special Air Force teams from the Arnold Engineering Development Center in Tullahoma, Tennessee. The teams were specially trained to find evidence as well as missing persons and spent Wednesday searching mountain caves and bluffs with no success. Chief Deputy Sheriff Hammond told the press that he was 98% sure that somebody was dead. He said he could not confirm it was three people, but he would be willing to bet that at least one was dead. In the same article, Deputy Chief Hammond told reporters they did not have any definite suspects, but did have several people they were taking a serious look at. He refused to speculate on motive, but acknowledged that police had questioned the man who owned the land where the three men were riding their ATVs. Deputy Chief Hammond said investigators believe that at least one of the men were shot, probably with a shotgun, while riding their ATVs, and evidence gathered at that point indicated that at least one suffered a head wound, 
and another probably had upper body injuries. Hammond further said that detectives believe that the vehicles and bodies were hauled out and dumped separately. In a steady rain, about 50 people continued the search, focusing on the caves and bluffs and ravines, places where, as Chief Deputy Hammond described it, you could throw a body off. Chief Hammond was Mr. Sensitive, wasn't he? He sure sounded like it. (laughs) At 7.30 p.m. that same day, so this is four days after the men disappeared, three bodies were found in neighboring Marion County on Suck Creek Mountain. The bodies were found by Marion County Commissioner Bernie McDowell. Two days before, his wife was taking her daily walk, and on this day she noticed that a horrendous smell was coming from another illegal dump site. She told her husband about what she saw and smelled, and he went to take a look at it two days later. Bernie noticed the same horrible smell along with buzzing flies. When he investigated further, he found three bodies stacked on top of each other on a bluff about 50 feet below the road's surface. The bodies were covered by brush and barbed wire. Although authorities were waiting for formal identification, Two of the dead men were wearing military flight suits that matched the description of what Ken and Earl were wearing when they set off to go swimming at the Blue Hole. The bodies were found about five miles from where their ATVs were found. Deputy Chief Hammond said investigators believed that the bodies were taken to the dump site on ATVs, possibly the victims, via one of several backwoods trails that linked Signal Mountain and Suck Creek Mountain. If the perpetrator had used the highway, The distance would have been more than 10 miles, and Hammond said it did not make sense that the bodies would have been taken on a public highway for that distance. He also thought it was likely that more than one person was involved because of the effort to move the bodies and vehicles. Detectives felt that the perpetrator or perpetrators were very familiar with the area and possibly lived nearby. A team of 14 detectives were assigned to continue examining the site where the bodies were found, along with the trails leading back to Signal Mountain. By August, there was still no suspect who had been identified or arrested. On August 3, 1988, three weeks after Ken Griffith, Earl Smock, and Richard Mason went missing, Tennessee Governor Ned McWhorter announced a $5,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of those responsible for the murders. The next day, Crime Stoppers announced an additional $1,000 for any information that led to the conviction in the deaths of the three men. On January 3, 1990, about a year and a half after the murders, Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode that focused on the Signal Mountain murders. Hamilton County investigators received more than 100 telephone calls in the three days that followed. Detectives said they thought they knew who committed the murders, but they did not have a witness or enough evidence to make an arrest. And they did not identify the suspect. In May 1991, Almost three years after the murders, the Associated Press reported that the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department hired an independent investigator to look into the slayings. Sheriff's Detectives Larry Sneed and Roy Parham had spent hundreds of hours working on the case at that point and again stated that they believed they knew who committed the murders but lacked enough evidence to make an arrest. It was not until the fall of 1996, more than eight years after the murders, that sheriff's detectives got a break in the case. One night in October 1996, 
Detective Larry Sneed received an anonymous call at his home. The female caller told him if he wanted to solve the Signal Mountain murders, he needed to contact a woman named Marie Hill. Sneed met with Marie Hill, and she told him that several months prior, she began having an affair with an old married friend, Frank Castile. As we mentioned earlier, Castile was the owner of the land on which the Blue Hole was located. Or was it adjacent, Kath? I saw it in a court document, which, of course, we always take as the Bible. Yeah. That you had to go through his land to get there, but the Blue Hole itself was actually abutting the land. It wasn't encased within the land. People cut through it, his property to get there. To get there. to it, his exactly. Body. Okay. After the affair began, Marie received two anonymous letters that accused Castile of murdering the three men. The letters also contained newspaper clippings about the murders. Police did DNA analysis on the saliva on the postage stamp of one of the letters, and the DNA matched Susie Castile, Frank Castile's wife. Kath, I did not read anywhere as to why they had her DNA on file. Neither did I, so she could have voluntarily given a sample. Right. Once the affair came to Detective Sneed's attention, Marie allowed him to install listening devices on her phone lines and in her house. On October 12, 1996, at 2.30 in the morning, Susie Castile went to Marie's house and confronted her husband, Frank, who was there with Marie. That confrontation turned into a five-hour conversation between Castile, his wife, and his mistress. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall (laughs) for that one? (laughs) Thankfully, the police were. That's true. Following this five-hour conversation, police executed a search warrant of Castile's residence in order to find the anonymous letters that he had taken from Marie's house. So, Kath, what I read is that when the police, of course, were recording these conversations, they heard Frank demand Marie give him those letters so he could take them with him. While searching for the letters, police seized 44 items, including a shotgun and ammunition. On April 15, 1997, almost nine years after the bodies of Ken Griffith, Earl Smock, and Richard Mason were found, investigators finally gathered enough evidence to charge Frank Castile with their murders. He was held in the Hamilton County Jail with a $450,000 bail. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Opening arguments began more than one year later on May 11th, 1998, with Hamilton County Criminal Court Judge Doug Meyer presiding. A defense motion to change venue due to the amount of publicity the case had received was granted, but rather than moving the location of the trial like they usually do, instead, the jurors were brought in from Loudoun County, which was approximately 75 miles northeast of Chattanooga. I wonder if they took the Chattanooga choo-choo. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me, boys, this is the Chattanooga choo-choo. <laughs> You haven't sang on one of our episodes in a long time. I know. My mother used to like that song. It took investigators years to build their circumstantial case because it was based primarily on Castile's acknowledged confrontations with trespassers on his property. During opening statements, Special Prosecutor Lee Davis told the jury that because Castile and his wife Susie planned to build a home there, Castile wanted to discourage people from crossing his property to get to the Blue Hole. Davis focused on a notebook where Castile kept names, addresses, license plate numbers, and other details of any trespassers he confronted on his land. Davis also said the fact that the bodies were found on one side of Signal Mountain and the ATVs miles away on the other side showed the gunman went to great lengths to draw attention away from the murder scene on Castile's property. Davis said Castile's son Donnie and his wife Susie helped hide the bodies Although, it's important to note, neither were ever charged. Right. Davis said that the notebook was significant for what Castile included in it and what he did not. Castile numbered each entry, and there was an encounter that happened the same day of the murders with two other men. But the names of the three murdered men were not in the notebook. Davis told the jury that if Castile had not committed the murders, the names of the three victims would have been logged in the notebook. Defense attorney Don Poole said Castile and his wife were at the Blue Hole when the murders allegedly occurred on his property and did not see the three men crossing his property. Poole said that his client had good reasons to chase away trespassers. They saw all kinds of trash and heard rumors about people on the land using drugs, so Castile wanted that kind of behavior to stop. But Poole said his client did not kill to do that. Also an opening statement, 
Castile's lawyer said that carrying a shotgun on Signal Mountain was not unusual nor illegal and that other landowners used weapons to drive away trespassers. They acknowledged that Castile sometimes threatened trespassers, but threatening them is a far cry from killing three people and hiding their bodies. The defense also accused police detectives of unfairly deciding that Castile murdered the men and ignoring evidence that pointed to other suspects. According to court records, prosecutors submitted a list of 176 potential witnesses, including 12 trespassers, recorded in the notebook, and said they would all testify that Castile shook with anger when he ordered them off his property. Prior to trial, defense attorneys moved to exclude any evidence of Castile's prior confrontations with trespassers, but the court denied the motion. The state presented 18 witnesses in total who all testified about prior encounters with the defendant, and a few of them were noted in court documents. Signal Mountain resident Vince Brown testified that on the day of the murders, so this is July 9, 1988, he saw Castile and Castile's wife in a Jeep Scrambler and that the Jeep was noticeably muddy. Castile told Mr. Brown that he was going camping on Signal Mountain that weekend. Mr. Brown then saw Castile two days later and noticed that his Jeep Scrambler was clean. William Wiggins, one of Frank Castile's neighbors, testified that he heard a series of gunshots coming from the direction of the defendant's property on the day of the murders. Between 7.30 and 8.30 p.m., Mr. Wiggins heard between five and eight shots, all of which were fired within about 10 seconds of each other. Also on the night of the murders, Pam O'Neill was camping on property that was near Castile's. That evening, she heard ATVs cross her property. Shortly after that, she heard gunshots. Jerry and Donna Anderson were in the area where the bodies were ultimately discovered on the night of July 9, 1988, and the early morning hours of July 10, 1988. Sometime before 1.30 a.m. on July 10, so this is the day after the murders, Jerry and Donna saw a Jeep that was loaded down with weight in the back. They also said there was a blue tarp in the Jeep and identified Frank Castile's son, Donnie, as the driver. However, at trial, Donnie Castile testified that he worked until 11 p.m. on July 9, 1988, the day of the murders, and that he went to his grandfather's house after that to go to bed. His grandfather confirmed his story. The next day, John Lines observed a woman washing blood out of the back of a Jeep at a local car wash. He asked the woman whether it was blood, and the woman replied that she had just taken a pig to the slaughterhouse. Because slaughterhouses are normally closed on Sundays, Mr. Lines found the woman's answer suspicious. So, he wrote down the license plate number. I love that this guy followed his instincts and wrote it down like he just knew it sounded hanky. Right, exactly. I agree with that. Later, though, Mr. Lyons testified that he saw Castile driving a Jeep, and Mr. Lyons happened to check the license plate against the one he'd written down. And in fact, the number matched that of the license plate he saw at the car wash. And in a very strange coincidence, after Ken Griffith's brother, Lee, found out that the ATVs had been found the day after his brother went missing, he got into his car to drive home so he could personally tell his mother about it before she heard it from somebody else or on the news. But he had car trouble and couldn't drive his car, so he stopped a Jeep and asked for a ride. Coincidentally, this Jeep was driven by Frank Castile. Castile gave Lee a ride, and Lee noticed that the Jeep was wet in the back and thought that the water in the Jeep was unusual because it had not rained recently. Talk about insane coincidences. No kidding. 
John Saver testified that on June 16, 1998, roughly a month before the murders, he and seven other friends drove to the Blue Hole to go swimming. So, Kath, there's eight of them total, and they take two cars. So there's six guys in one car and two guys in another car. So they're done swimming, and it's time to leave. So John had six people in his truck, and the two others were walking to a truck. So John looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees Castile approach his two buddies, and these two buddies were still on foot and going to their car. Castile has a shotgun in his hand as he's approaching these two men. So John turns his car around and goes back. So Castile gets all of them out. So these six guys in the car now get out and join their two friends, and Castile holds them at gunpoint and makes everyone keep their hands where he can see them. So he is angry, and he makes everyone write their names down in his book. Then he told John that he was tired of people driving through his backyard. Gary McDowell also testified. He said that approximately two months prior to the murder, he and his wife were riding horses near the Blue Hole when they happened upon Castile at his campsite. Castile was irate and complained about trespassers, specifically saying he was irritated by certain individuals, including Mason, a name identical to the last name of one of the eventual murder victims. Castile told Gary McDowell that he was going to make believers out of the individuals that were irritating him. After Castile recorded the names of Mr. McDowell and his wife in his book, he then made them leave his property. Hamilton County Medical Examiner Dr. Frank King performed the autopsies on the three men and estimated they were shot between 6 and 8 p.m. on Saturday, July 9, 1988. Dr. King said that based on the wounds, the men were probably sitting on their vehicles facing their killer and all their ATVs were facing the same way. He testified that Richard Mason died first from a shotgun wound to the chest and that the trajectory of the shotgun pellets were of somebody standing over somebody who was sitting. The second man that he said died was Ken Griffith. Ken was shot in the head. Again, the trajectory was such that it was from somebody standing over them. Earl Smock was the last to be killed, and he was shot twice, with Dr. King speculating he was trying to get away. Mm -hmm. Now remember, only two of the ATVs had blood on them. One did not, so it's likely that Earl was off the ATV and trying to get away at that point. Right. Now, the first wound that Earl suffered was in his right shoulder, and the trajectory was a straight shot. So it was somebody behind him shooting straight at them. The second wound was in his lower left shoulder, upper chest area. The trajectory of this wound was as if somebody was standing over him, firing a gun directly at him. The first wound, the one where he was running and he was shot in the right shoulder, was actually what they call birdshot. And that means that the pellets from the shotgun were smaller than the 12-gauge shotgun that was used to kill both Richard and Ken. Now, the second wound, the one where somebody was standing over him shooting directly into his chest, that was buckshot, which is the larger pellets that come from a 12-gauge shotgun. On cross-examination, Dr. King said that Earl Smock could have been shot by two different people and two different guns. Kelly Fight, a firearms examiner with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, examined Castile's 12-gauge pump-action shotgun on July 23, 1988, which was 10 days after the bodies were found. Mr. Fight testified that Castile's gun held seven rounds of ammunition and was capable of firing seven shots in a row. The interior of Castile's gun, however, had no imperfections which would mark the wadding. 
The wadding found at the Helican Gate also had no markings. On the fifth day of trial, jurors heard the conversations Castile's mistress, Marie Hill, allowed detectives to record by bugging her house. In the portions played for the jury, Susie Castile accused her husband, Frank, of lying his way out of trouble and ignoring how she suffered after he became a suspect in the murders. Quote, I've stood by you for 30 years. I've stood by you through one of the worst things we could ever go through. I had myself drugged down to the police station and fingerprinted because of what you've done. Kath, I wonder if it was here that she gave a DNA sample. I bet that's exactly it. Yeah. Susie asked her husband, Frank, if he was going to tell Marie about the excess baggage he would be bringing to their relationship since he was a suspect in the murders. Susie also told Frank she suspected that their house and Marie's house had been bugged and asked why he didn't appreciate her. What I went through eight years ago doesn't prove to you that I love you. In turn, Castile accused Susie of trying to destroy his relationship with his mistress. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) during her testimony, Susie blamed herself for her husband's arrest, saying she sent the letters to Marie because she was jealous and distraught over the affair. But she said she never believed her husband was guilty of murder. Under cross-examination, Marie was questioned by defense attorneys about why she allowed detectives to bug her house. She testified that she thought Castile was responsible for the three murders and decided to cooperate to see if she were right. Since nowhere on the tapes did Susie say her husband killed anyone, defense attorneys accused prosecutors of using the recording to portray Castile as a bad person and that they proved nothing. Prosecutors countered by saying that the lack of denial by Castile on the recordings pointed to his guilt. The case went to the jury on Wednesday, May 20, 1998, nine days after trial began. According to an article by journalist Rachel Zoll for the Associated Press, it took fewer than two hours for jurors to convict Frank Castile on all three counts of first-degree murder. He showed no emotion as the jury returned the verdicts and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. As the jury began leaving the courtroom, Susie Castile started screaming. He didn't do it. He didn't kill anyone. One of Castile's sons, Trevor, said, I feel sorry for the families because justice has not been served. I love him very much. He's not capable of doing this. Lee Griffith, whose younger brother Ken was killed, cried as he left the courtroom and said, We got him. We're going to the graveyard when we leave here. I've never been to the graveyard. It didn't feel right before. So many questions weren't answered, and I feel like there wasn't anything to say. But now, after today's verdict, I have something I want to tell him. Frank Castile appealed his conviction to the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals. Now, he cited a bunch of issues. There were like 11 issues for the reasons the verdict should be overturned, but the court latched on to that the trial court erred in allowing the prosecutor to make certain statements during closing argument. So I thought this was interesting, Kath, because the defendant argued that the trial court erred in allowing the prosecutor to make references to certain statements during the recordings between Frank Castile, his wife, and his girlfriend. One of the statements made during closing by the prosecutor was this. What do we know? We know a couple of things about Frank Castile. We know he's a man of exceptional deception. Look at how he deceived his wife. 
We know he's a man of exceptional cruelty. Look how cruel he was to his wife, sitting there with his mistress saying, I love you, Marie. I don't love you, Susie. Holding children at gunpoint, threatening them, them begging to be let go. What kind of man is he? A man of deception, a man of cruelty. So here's the deal. The defense attorney did not object at this point. And the Court of Appeals said, hey, look, normally a failure to object waves an argument on appeal. However, the Court of Appeal was concerned that this improper argument prevented the defendant from receiving a fair trial and basically said, hey, look, even if he had objected, it didn't matter. His objection would have been overruled. And this evidence is so highly prejudicial. It outweighs any kind of probative value. And the court was erroneous to allow the prosecutor to make it. So the Court of Appeal basically said, hey, look, the trial court should have instructed the jury that the arguments of counsel are not evidence. But there was no curative instruction here. And the Court of Appeal basically said this evidence should not have been admitted in the first place. But again, any objection would probably have been overruled. The Court of Appeal was also critical of the prosecutor for another statement he made in closing argument. But I want to point out that Frank Castile took the stand in his own defense. And for every single witness that the prosecution brought forward, he basically said, nope, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. So in closing argument, the prosecutor said, if you don't believe Frank Castile lied to you yesterday, then turn him loose, let him go. And I believe if I heard the defense counsel accurately, he intimated that Mr. Castile didn't lie to you. What's he talking about? Of course he lied to you. Do you remember the conversation where Gary McDowell says he mentioned that he was having trouble with an old timer and it was Mason and Joe Skinner and somebody else? What did he say? Never happened. Never had any conversation. What did he say about every encounter? Not, no, it didn't happen that way. No, it never happened at all. They're lying. All of these witnesses, these 14 witnesses that he pointed the shotgun at, came in here and testified as to what happened. He says, no, that's all lies. Now, why? Why would he lie? Did he lie? If you find he lied to you, he lied to you because he's guilty. The innocent have no reason to come in here, raise their hand to God and lie. Only the guilty do. If you find that Frank Castile lied to you yesterday, then you must conclude he's guilty. Now, at this point, defense counsel objects and the trial court overrules the objection, basically saying, hey, the prosecution has a right to make that statement. The Court of Appeals said, no, 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 no. This in and of itself was probably not enough to warrant a reversal of the conviction, but the cumulative effect of the errors does. And this statement that if Frank Castile lied to you yesterday, then you must conclude he is guilty should not have been allowed. Accordingly, the judgment of the trial court was reversed and remanded so the defendant could be provided with the opportunity for a new trial. So it was remanded back to the trial court, but what happens? The trial judge recused himself, and they placed a new judge on the case. And the defense attorneys, by the way, asked to withdraw, so Frank Castile got new counsel on his second trial. Special Judge James Weatherford was appointed to the case, and in May 2002, ruled that the trial would be held in Hamilton County but, like in the last one, the jury would be chosen from a different county. This one was Davidson, which was about 150 miles northwest. Trial began on May 1, 2003, five years after Frank Castile's first trial, 
in nearly 15 years after the murders of Ken Griffith, Earl Smock, and Richard Mason. Judge Weatherford allowed defense lawyers to present evidence they said could indicate someone other than Castile shot and killed the three men, evidence that was not allowed to be introduced in the first trial. So, Kath, the new evidence came during the cross-examination of Stanley Nixon, who, as you'll recall, was Richard Mason's neighbor and the man from whom he borrowed one of the ATVs. Mm -hmm. So Stanley was telling a story about how eight months before the murders, he and Richard were out hunting and they ran across a man named Cecil Hickman who was a caretaker for property that was on the land adjacent to Castile's. Okay. Hickman had a gun, fired three shots in the air. I guess Richard swerved his truck toward Hickman, didn't hit him or anything, and then they drove off. Now, Stanley said, no hard feelings. No harm, no foul. (laughs) No harm, no foul. (laughs) Obviously, the defense was raising this to point to somebody else being the perpetrator. Exactly, and that's who they had wanted to introduce the first time, and they weren't allowed to in the first trial. You know what's interesting, Kath? When this judge recused himself, there was a quote, and you had it. I don't have it. What is that quote? Judge Doug Meyer recused himself from the retrial, citing, quote, good and sufficient reasons, end quote. That was all he said. Nothing else came out. So I am just wondering if he felt that he were actually biased. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. This evidence made the retrial, but it didn't make the first trial. Right. And it was one of the items that Castile listed in his appeal. Right. So the other thing on redirect, because remember, this was all on cross-examination. On redirect, Stanley testified that the first incident that he spoke about with Hickman did not occur anywhere near Helican Road and that Hickman was in Kentucky during the weekend of July 9th, 1988, which is when the murders occurred. There goes that theory. Exactly. The prosecution brought the same witnesses to the stand who had testified at the first trial, again going through the sightings and the actions of Castile from the witnesses both the night and the morning after the murders. And then they also brought the witnesses who had run-ins with Castile and had to put their names in notebooks and testified about how angry and irate he was in the shotgun. Now, Castile did not testify on his own behalf during the second trial, but his wife Susie did testify on his behalf. What I thought was most interesting is that she did say at that time, so this is now 15 years after the murders, that she and her husband were still married. That really surprised me. Susie said she and her husband first considered purchasing the property in March of 1988, and the owner told them that they could use the property until the purchase was completed in June. Susie said that she and her husband went to the campsite on this property frequently during this period of time and put up no trespassing signs with their telephone numbers, and this is when they began to stop people traveling Helican Road to tell them that the land was privately owned. She also testified that she never saw her husband point a gun at anyone. On cross-examination, Susie admitted that she had sent the three letters to Marie Hill and reiterated that she just wanted to scare her and said that she did not even know the police had her letters until after her husband was arrested. Susie admitted that she did not tell the police why she wrote the letters. On Wednesday, May 7, 2003, after eight hours of deliberation, a jury of nine women and three men again convicted Frank Castile of murdering Ken Griffith, Earl Smock, and Richard Mason in 1988. Judge Weatherford sentenced Castile to three concurrent life sentences, making him eligible for parole in 51 years. On September 30, 2004, the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals upheld the murder convictions. Frank Castile died in prison on May 25, 2019, at the age of 71. 
we want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but we also appreciate all the messages we're getting we from totally listeners do. who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. And- so please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.